Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 33. And for this episode, we have two excellent, exciting treats. One, the focus of this episode is my conversation with Dr. Victoria Barnett of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. But number two is that I'm joined today for the intro, in addition to the interview you'll hear shortly, by Dr. Matthew Tapey of the St. Leo University Center for Catholic Jewish Studies. Matt, how's it going? It's going well, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. We yeah. are here in your dining room <laughs> yes. recording this intro because we are neighbors. <laughs> we, can, we can do this. So you are the one responsible for bringing Dr. Barnett to St. Leo's campus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where did that idea or opportunity come from? That's a great question. You know, Vicki Barnett, Dr. Barnett and I had worked uh, together a bit at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C. while I was uh, teaching up at Catholic University of America as a visiting professor there. And I taught Jewish-Christian relations at CUA and would take my students over Mm. to the museum. And that kind of started a relationship where Vicki would give us a tour and then later on, it also grew into a museum forming a kind of a colloquium of different professors from different universities that would come over to the museum to talk about how they were teaching the Holocaust. And so I did that a little bit over there from about 2013 to 2014. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It was really a good experience because we got to, you know, not only read about the We Remember document from the Commission for Religious Relations with the Jews in our class, Mm. the Vatican document that asks for Catholics to think about the causes for the Holocaust, think about the causes and to meditate, meditate on them, actually. So in that class, we began to see the need to then head over to the museum and and meditate further there on the Shoah. So that was the genesis of, of my relationship with Vicki and, and getting to know her through that. When we thought about programming for this year, I also thought about the fact that we've seen white supremacy and other ideologies in the United States mm-hmm. feel emboldened. And obviously with Charlottesville and other uh, events at university campuses led you know, by Richard Spencer, we thought it would be a good idea to, to address um, Nazism and to do it in a theological context. Yeah. And so Vicky's a great resource for yeah. that with her knowledge of Bonhoeffer. Yeah, I mean, she was the one of the general editors for the the was it 14 volume or 17 volume or, or very high number of volume collected works of Bonhoeffer. Yeah, I think I think it is 14 volume Bonhoeffer, uh, the English translations, and has done a lot of work on Bonhoeffer and has recently just published a book on Bonhoeffer as well. Actually, two books. I'm not sure how she handles her administrative (laughs) roles at the museum. She's the director of the ethics, the program on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust at at the museum, which basically means that she handles all religiously affiliated groups that come to the museum or reach Mm -hmm. out to the museum. She'll be the one to, to, to connect with them and to work with them. So she has a lot of administrative tasks, but still manages to publish, uh, quite, frequently and her, her recent books are, are evidence of that so so yeah she came out f- um, for this program that was in part to memor- to also memorialize Kristallnacht the night of broken glass mm. and so she she spoke on our campus she spoke down in Tampa and in the the interview you know our listeners are about to hear they're going to hear her talk about how she got into studying Bonhoeffer about 
uh, when she went to Union Theological Seminary and was introduced to liberation theology and how that connected her to Bonhoeffer when she later moved to Germany. She's going to talk about her work at the museum. She's going to talk about her experience as a child in West Virginia going to these kind of, well, the Sunday school program would take her to different parishes and different churches and whatnot. And I was wondering for you, as someone who's better versed on this material than I am, was there a favorite part for you from the, the conversation? That's a great question. Uh, my, the, the part that really struck me was the evening program we did that was not at St. Leo, but that was at Christ the King, I thought was really something because, you know, Christ the King helped host it with us because it's Christ the King Catholic Church down in South Tampa. And during the program, a local rabbi welcomed everyone. But then before he did his welcome, he also shared that his parents were survivors Mm. of uh, Shoah and that his uh, father in particular was rescued by Christians, Mm. that they helped smuggle him out of Germany and into Switzerland where he married and attained a passport and was able to uh, escape to the States. So it was kind of a remarkable way to kind of frame the entire evening, which we're, Mm. you know, thinking about Kristallnacht, Night of Broken Glass, which is, you know, for those who may not know, this is the the night, November 9th, where most uh, scholars would pinpoint the beginning of the Holocaust and over 400 synagogues are torched or attacked, damaged this, this night throughout Germany and, and abroad in Europe. And so, you know, to have someone there who, whose parents were directly affected by mm-hmm. it really kind of set a really interesting context. And excuse me, Vicky's talk on uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and re- uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish reactions during the Holocaust was her talk, and, and that was a remarkable Mm. Um, a talk she really illuminated the fact that a startling idea that we knew we being kind of if we if we use the we to refer to the United States of America we we understood what was happening but that didn't compel us to change immigration policy mm-hmm. and so that was a disturbing thought that the Holocaust could be unfolding and that Americans uh, could know about it religious leaders knew on the Catholic side and yet we we still couldn't manage to to push hard enough to have yeah. immigration changed. So uh, that evening program was not only historically informative, but really... Sounds very moving. Yeah, moving and caused us to de- you know, reflect e- deeply on now, on how, yeah. how are we react- reacting to this situation now where we have more refugees, uh, stateless persons uh, than we have in history. How are, yeah. we, how are we reacting to that as, a, as, a, as Catholics? Yeah, that's good. Well, on behalf of Daily Theology and all of our listeners, I want to thank you for making this interview possible and for being here with me tonight. If listeners want to find out more about you or the Center for Catholic Jewish Studies, what should they do? They can search for us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. So we invite everybody to kind of go there to find us. You can also find me on Twitter at mtapey. And so connect with us those ways and happy to share more information. Yeah. And there'll be links to all that in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please enjoy the upcoming interview. And if you enjoy it, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or leave comments on the blog. And we'll see you next time. Welcome today to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm here with Victoria Barnett 
who is the director of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's program on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust. Dr. Burnett, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're here today. You're speaking at my university, St. Leo, as at the invitation of the Center for Catholic Jewish Studies. And you're speaking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and about uh, complicity in the Holocaust and resistance in the Holocaust and whatnot. And I wanted to start off by asking you if you could tell me a bit about how it is you came to be interested in Bonhoeffer and in these questions and maybe a little bit of the, the career trajectory that led you to where you are now. Sure. This was not planned. Uh, <laughs> my, my career path, when I look back, is I, I'm always struck by how surprised I am by where I went along the way and where I ended up. But I'll start with my decision to go to seminary in mm. the 1970s. I graduated from Indiana University in Bloomington, planning really to go into special education and music therapy. I got involved in the local campus ministry and made the career choice to go to seminary. I felt called to go to seminary. I got to Union in 1976. Mm. This was at Union Seminary in New York when a lot of leading liberation theologians were teaching there, Gustavo Gutierrez, Dorothy Zula. And I kind of got swept up in my interest in that that Mm. body of theological work and ended up doing my master's thesis on the ideological battles in the Latin American Catholic Church over liberation theology. Really? I did my master's thesis on the Puebla Conference Mm -hmm. and actually went down to Puebla the summer before the conference and interviewed people and got to meet people and talk to them about what what they were thinking, you know, people both in the church and people who were working in local grassroots communities. And then I went down to Puebla itself during the conference and sat in on a lot of sessions and wrote my, my thesis on that. And so my my interest at that point, what really kind of caught my imagination was what happens to religion, what happens to people of faith when they're caught up in something like that, mm. when they're caught up in political turmoil, when they're caught up in ideological battles. And then I turned around and married a fellow student who was from Germany. And, <laughs> you know, so I ended up in the summer of 1979 moving to Germany and kind of looked around a bit to see what I could do. I was doing some freelancing as a journalist. But that that sub-interest, you know, what happens to religion and people of faith when when they're caught up in something like this? The logical case study that kind of presents itself is the history of the churches under National Socialism Mm -hmm. in Germany. And I began in my role as a journalist to interview Germans who had been in the Confessing Church. I knew about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. I knew about the Confessing Church. At that time, I had a very sort of heroicized vision of what (laughs) all that was and was struck as I began to interview these people by how complicated their histories actually were. Mm -hmm. And that led me to begin to do more interviews. I ended up doing about 60 oral histories with people who had been in the Confessing Church. I was lucky to do this at a time when I could still interview people like Martin Niemöller, mm-hmm. uh, Helmut Golwitzer, all of those interviews I kind of brought together for my first book, For the Soul of the People. And that's really what got me interested in the Holocaust. I had taken a course on Elie Wiesel at mm. Union, So I I had had a basic course in the Holocaust, but linking that history with the history of the churches was something I didn't do till I got to Germany. But it was the same underlying question, that question of, you know, what happens when religion becomes ideological? Uh, So the book came out in 1992. By that time, I was back in this country, and I began to go to Holocaust conferences. And that was eventually what got me my job at the Holocaust Museum. Hmm. 
So I, I'm curious, e even stepping back, the interest in liberation theology yeah. and the, the Latin American context. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, there's definitely very clear parallels between the kind of suffering and oppression in that context and what you're talking about in terms yeah. of Germany and whatnot. I mean, it's more extreme in a real yeah. sense. But I, I guess in a way, I'm, I'm curious, what was it? A, I mean, at Union, was it just a matter of the professors that you had that, that drew you into that? Mm. Was there anything in your own background or in your own spiritual upbringing that made that a real uh, catch or a real interest for you? Or That's a great question. I think part of it was the professors. I mean, I was very lucky to have the professors I had. Um, my mentor was Robert McAfee Brown, who mm -hmm. was just wonderful. And Bob Brown would take the time to sit down and really talk to his <laughs> students about it. So, so I, I was also given space to explore those kinds of questions in conversation with people who really knew a great deal about them. In terms of my own history, I was baptized Methodist, but I grew up Episcopalian. If you go back into my family background on both sides, there are Congregationalists and Quakers. and <laughs> it's, it's kind of a very, you know, it's sort of a mix of American Protestantism. So I'm not sure that there was anything there that really made, gave mm -hmm. me that, that interest that later really came out. Yeah. Was there, for you as someone in seminary and at least initially planning to go into ministry, was there something difficult or, or strange or was there any kind of uh, familial backlash in focusing on uh, Catholic questions and you know Catholic context or was it sort of par for the course in a kind of American Christian Catholic mud kind of set up? Uh, there really wasn't. I, I think my parents thought for a while this was Vicky's latest thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but they, they, they got interested in it, and I think they were very interested in, in what I ended up with in terms of, of my scholarship. I'll add, so one interesting thing in my own family background, and I'm going to bring it up in the lecture this evening, was I grew up in a family and in communities where there was already a great deal of interreligious openness, mm. both with regards to local Jewish communities and, and lo the local Catholic community. So I didn't grow up in an atmosphere where you know there was sort of a clear clearer sense that the Catholics or the Jews were the other or people that we, we couldn't be friends with. One story I like to tell is that I, I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, and the church that we attended, where my mother taught Sunday school, made a point of taking us as a Sunday school class to different houses of worship. Hmm. So I remember going to a Catholic mass, and I remember going to a, a synagogue, and I remember we went to a Quaker meeting, and because we were in West Virginia and my parents knew people who knew these communities. We even went one evening to see the snake handlers <laughs> out in the hollows, which is one of those indelible mm -hmm. memories from my childhood. So I grew up in, an, in a family in an atmosphere where I was aware that there were lots of different kinds of religion and they were all equally mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. And the, one of the things that you've been really responsible for is you were editing the collected works of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, from 2004 to 2014. This kind of <clears throat> massive project and um, were those new translations as part of that? or These were new translations. I, I was one of several general okay. editors, but I, I came on board for the last set of volumes, which were the more heavily historical volumes. Yeah, these are, were, it was an entirely new translation of the collected works, which had been published in the 1980s in German. Mm -hmm. And the sense was that you know, Bonhoeffer's works deserved a new translation, especially because a good half of our volumes include things that had not been previously published. These were letters with friends and family and colleagues, ecumenical documents, German 
police documents, I mean, all the, all the documents that sort of fit into Bonhoeffer's life. And so the collected works, you know, the first volumes are his writings, like mm-hmm. Discipleship and Ethics. But most of the volumes are kind of the, the writings around that, mm-hmm. you know, student notes and lectures that he gave and Bible studies and sermons that he gave. And it gives you a much more complete understanding of Bonhoeffer as a person. And I think it also really gives a much deeper understanding and insight into his works. So mm-hmm. it's I, I'm proud to have been part of the project. I had no idea when I signed on to it what I was getting myself <laughs> into. But it, it was it was it's one I feel extremely privileged to have been able to do that. And you mentioned that when you went to Germany you had the kind of caricature image of Bonhoeffer in mind <clears> and that your your interviews and your research helped to unpack that and and spoil that. I have this impression <clears> and I don't know if this is correct or not, it's my impression, so you Please correct me if I'm wrong. But I get this impression that there's been kind of a resurgence in the U.S. at least of interest in Bonhoeffer in the last five or six years. And it reminds me of the kind of resurgence of interest in Reinhold Niebuhr Hmm. Niebuhr about 10, 15 years ago. And I'm a little more versed in Niebuhr uh, Mm -hmm. than I am in Bonhoeffer. But it seemed like the, the resurgence of interest in Niebuhr was in part due to the U.S. neoconservatives and uh, our role in the Iraq war and Mm. Afghan war and whatnot, but also with, you know, President Obama specifically Mm. referencing Niebuhr and all that. But I I noted in, as I was reading that there are, you know, (laughs) Niebuhr was was someone that both political and ideological sides in the U.S. could really grab onto and Mm. find pieces that they wanted to work with. And so you have even somewhat diverse, you have President Obama directly references him in the Nobel Peace Prize speech. You have, there was this funny story about former FBI director James Comey and his yes. Twitter handle being <laughs> Reinhold Niebuhr. Which I, I find I, fascinating. <laughs> and he, he, I guess he wrote his master's thesis or something yeah. on Niebuhr. And I, I guess the the circuitous question I'm, I'm looping back to with Bonhoeffer is, I'm wondering, well, one, am I, am I right that I'm mm-hmm. seeing this resurgence? But also, I'm wondering what you think maybe accounts for that and in your interest in, in how religion and faith are often used ideologically, mm, yeah. I'm wondering about that kind of uh, recapitulation or resurgence of Bonhoeffer within that. Yeah. Now, it's a, a great question. I, I, first, I think that there has always been a certain fascination with Bonhoeffer among Christians mm-hmm. in this country. There are certain, you know, his book on discipleship and his prison letters mm-hmm. were published in this country in the 1950s and immediately got a wide leader, readership among Christians at all points of the spectrum. I think you're exactly right that, you know, like Niebuhr, Bonhoeffer has readers at all points of the theological spectrum who kind of claim him mm-hmm. for their own theology. But I think that's, one can be cynical about that, but I think to some extent it's because he managed to find a language to talk about faith that really does resonate with most most Christians, not just in this country, but around the world. It's Mm -hmm. really interesting to see the interest in him that is in places like South Korea, Mm. in Africa. I mean, you know, non-Western contexts where you would think maybe... You know, a German theologian wouldn't mm-hmm. wouldn't find much of an audience, but but people really do read him. Now, part of that may be because of the drama of his life, yeah. and the fact that he was executed by the National Socialists. You know, so there's there's something there that kind of gets people additionally interested, and I think they also read his his theology through that historical lens as well. But I think that's part of it. Now, I think, in to some extent, I think 
the recent resurgence in interest, uh, maybe partly due to the Metaxas biography of him, which okay. I think was very, it was a bestseller, very widely read, kind of put Bonhoeff on the, back on the map for a lot of people. And so, you know, to some extent, I think that we, we can see it coming from that source. Mm-hmm. And you, you were quite critical of Metaxas's biography yeah. in terms of both its production and its worldview. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think in terms of, again, and this is maybe my limited understanding, the, this perception of Bonhoeffer as this really heroic mar, you know, martyr figure who, who dies for his faith, that there, there's this element of truth to that, but it often is used to obscure the... I don't know the best way to put this, but there's a real hand-wringing for Bonhoeffer, it seems like, yeah. in terms of what he feels called to do. And it and it fits really well into, in the cost of discipleship, this you know dichotomy mm-hmm. between cheap and costly grace, that there's this, there's something really at risk, I guess, in, mm-hmm. in, in how he understands his call, if I'm, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. and reading him rightly, mm-hmm. that I think challenges in a sense the sort of easy heroic view of him yeah well i would say let let me start with that last comment because i i think one of my main criticisms not just of the biography by bister but texas but but other popular works on bonhoeffer is that inevitably they kind of put him front and center on the historical stage Mm -hmm. and he wasn't you know he was a young man relatively unknown at the time you know, it kind of distorts his historical role mm-hmm. to put him there. And that distortion of his historical role, I think, sometimes leads us to misread mm-hmm. his theology. So it's not a matter so much as, you know, pulling him off the pedestal as trying to get a hold of, of who he was in his times and what, what he was really talking about. Now, I think, you know, Mr. Metaxas is a very faithful Christian. I mean, he takes his faith seriously. And and my main criticism of the book, and so one criticism I have of the of head of the book is one that I have across the board, <laughs> um, which 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 is what I just said, which is that that you know people sort of put Bonhoeffer as the leader of the resistance, the leader of the Confessing Church, front and center on the historical stage, and and that is a distortion. Mm-hmm. The other distortion is sort of claiming, you know, Bonhoeffer for a particular historical or theological or or political position in the current culture wars. And what I like to say to people on that is that, you know, the culture wars among within American Christianity are our problem, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they weren't Bonhoeffer's problem. And to pull him Mm. out of, you know, where he was into our worldview, our setting, our issues is also a way of distorting him, I think. And, And it's sort of a slippery slope. And, you know, Metaxas is certainly not the only person who do, has done this, and it happens on the left as well as the right. I mean, sure. it's, it, it's, it's a problem in the American reception of Bonhoeffer. And so those are the things that I'm, I tend to, I, I like to say I'm an equal opportunity curmudgeon. I tend to be <laughs> critical. In fact, in fact, I've just stopped reviewing Bonhoeffer books because I, I'm, I, I find myself getting so nitpicky, and I don't really think it's helpful. So mm-hmm. I'm, I try to... I'm trying to work on my Zen approach to what's on <laughs> that's that's fair I, under, I understand that I understand that I, if i if I could push on it maybe a little bit and i and i again I guess I'm thinking about this also in the context of, of Niebuhr, one thing that they seem to have in common for me is the there's this sense of humility in both maybe it's stronger in Niebuhr or at least I'm recalling it more strongly in terms of, mm. you know, questioning our own motivations. Mm. And there's not, the, there's not 
as best I can tell, this really strong sense of certainty about my actions or yeah. about the, the goodness of my yeah. actions. And what strikes me in the case of both and kind of the, at times, ideological uh, reception of them now is the way that they're used as sort of supports for whatever mm-hmm. it is I'm intending to do mm-hmm. without the connected sense of have you really been genuinely self-critical mm-hmm. about your motivations and intentions and what's driving that but I guess what that leads me to and this is one of the things that I've thought about with, with Niebuhr uh, is as much as the questions that they're facing are not specifically our questions particularly mm-hmm. especially in you know culture war yeah. type questions what is it especially for Bonhoeffer that you see as valuable or worthwhile in this you know, somewhat new or, or renewed attention to Bonhoeffer. Mm. What are the things that we can take from him that are not just about our current ideological right, battles, right. but... Yeah, I think recovering a sense of his his own uncertainty, his path, his attempt to witness as a Christian in incredibly difficult times. From our vantage point, we see in retrospect where this was all going mm-hmm. and what was going to happen to him we have to remind ourselves that he did not. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me in looking at his life in the 1930s, between 33 and 39, are the number of times that he leaves Nazi Germany. I think he was both looking to get out of that totalitarian setting and be able to work in freedom and perhaps a little bit uncertain about where his place could possibly be in Nazi Germany. He always went back, I think, in part because of his family. Mm. Uh, Late in the 1930s, I think, because of his obligation to his students. But to look at him, you know, in his context as a young man who was trying to pursue a career and then trying to figure out what the right thing for him to do was. I think he finds that in 1935 when he returns from London and directs this small illegal confessing church seminary up in in Finkenwalde, that he finds himself both in terms of a political purpose and as as, as a career or a vocation. One is struck when looks one one looks at his writings between thirty five and thirty nine when he's teaching these seminarians at how happy he is. You know, he's mm. he's kind of come into his own. He finds that he loves to teach. He loves to mentor people. In turn, in the Bonhoeffer works, you know, we have letters from these young seminarians back to him, and you can see just how transformative mm. their experience with Bonhoeffer was for them. And so, you know, it's it's such a remarkable moment in his life that I think often people don't realize they don't they don't know about when they just look at kind of the big picture. Yeah. But it helps us understand, I think, who he understood himself to be. And one of the things he does between thirty five and thirty nine, this is the height of Nazi Germany. Okay. I mean they're they're doing this in you know, he's training young men for the ministry in a setting in which, for all he knows, Hitler has just started a thousand-year Reich, mm-hmm. that they're going to be working in a church under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he's really mm-hmm. trying to train them with a sense of vocation to be faithful Christians in a very difficult context. And his attentiveness to that is is really remarkable. It's some of the most moving literature in the Bonhoeffer genre that often doesn't get read. It's in that period that he writes his two classics, Discipleship and Life Together. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, 1939 comes along. Again, he struggles with where he should be. He leaves briefly. He comes back. The war begins, and he finds his way into the, the resistance. And that kind of ends this very fruitful period of his life, and now he's simply 
somebody trying to do as well as he can mm-hmm. in the circles in which he found himself. Did the did the seminary end when the war began? Well, the seminary was closed by the Gestapo in 1937. Okay. After that, for two years, they continued to meet secretly in various places in Pomerania, which was a very rural part of Germany, and Bonhoeffer kind of visited them secretly, so he was continuing to train them. Okay. Uh, there was basically still seminary education, but it was underground. Mm-hmm. It was secret. And then it, with the war in 1939, all of that ended. Most of his seminarians were, were drafted or, or enlisted and fought on the front, and a number of them, I think almost half of them, died. And, of course, that's the period in which Bonhoeffer, to get out of the draft, is brought by his brother-in-law into military intelligence mm. to basically get him out of military service, and then they give him some things to do. Okay. And that's how he ends up in the resistance. It's striking because I, I mean, like you said, we all see this in the benefit of hindsight. And it, it had never occurred to me before to think about, you know, in 1937 or 38, someone living in Germany is thinking this is the beginning. Of, this is not going to be over in right. five, you know, seven years that this is the, this is the new world order that we're going to be living mm-hmm. under and thinking about training and ministering under that kind of context. I think I think that that question, and, and this is one of the reasons I think he resonates with people today, is you know his underlying question there is, so if I'm a faithful Christian, what am I called to do right now in this moment? Mm. And that's a question that any of us can pose to ourselves in whatever circumstances we live. But he, the way in which he gets people thinking about that, I think, is a really provocative one. One of the, the follow-ups to this, then, is you've worked on, you know, being one of the editors for this Collected mm-hmm. Works, and you, you've published a lot in the, on the Holocaust mm-hmm. and on complicity and resistance in the Holocaust. And it's your institutional setting, right, is the, yeah. is the museum, right. the, the Memorial Museum. And you've been there since 2004? I've been, I've been on the staff since 2004. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious I'm curious what the experience of working in that kind of setting is or or in terms of being an academic working in a museum and working in that kind of institution. And I, I don't know did did you were you a a, a university professor at any point? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you don't have the you can't really I guess compare right. it in that sense when and neither can <laughs> I cuz I don't know any any different either. But I guess I'm wondering what what the work of that is like and how is it that that how does that fulfill the kind of, I guess, surprise career that you found yourself going into? Yeah. Well, the museum is a wonderful place to work. I'll I'll say that, first of all, in part because it was founded with a a vision that encompassed being much more than what we think of as a museum. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a building with exhibitions. Yeah. And from the very beginning, there were generous donors who funded various educational outreach programs. So that we have a pretty large staff that does work that is not associated directly with creating an exhibit, but rather with training different professionals, with working with people from different lines of work, creating educational programs for for students and for professionals. And then there's an academic division at the museum, which is a research center. Mm -hmm. We also have, I would say, next to Yad Vashem in Israel, the largest collection of documentation on the Holocaust in the world. And we continue to acquire new artifacts, new archival collections, manuscript collections, 
Uh, we have a large collection of oral histories, of photographs. We have a fellowship program, so we have about 25 visiting fellows every year who come from around the world to do research at the museum. This is something a lot of our visitors never see. They don't yeah. realize that we're kind of up there on the fifth floor. We have a, a collection of record in our library, which means that we have every book that has ever been published on the Holocaust mm. in any language. Mm. So if you want to do research on the Holocaust, the, the museum is one of the places in the world, probably the primary place you're going to want to come and do your research. So it's a very active research environment, mm -hmm. which makes it a wonderful place to work because I'm surrounded by, you know, the experts in the field yeah. on German history, on military history, on Eastern European history. I mean, any aspect of the Holocaust, you can imagine there is somebody at the museum I can turn to and say, you know, where would I find out more about this? My field of expertise is the history of the Protestant churches in Nazi Germany. But more recently, I've begun doing a lot of research on the international ecumenical and interfaith movements during that era, which is kind of a new area of research. So I'm looking at how interfaith circles in the United States and Europe were responding to Nazi Germany and the hmm. Holocaust as events were unfolding. So there's always new scholarship being done. And when you think about it, it's fascinating that an event like the Holocaust, which is so well documented, so much has been written about it, and yet we keep discovering new things about it. Mm -hmm. Even now, you know, even now I come across things where I think, wow, I did not know that. And does that make me think differently about some of the work I've done? And that's some of what I think is going to drive maybe a new body of research with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think as we discover more mm. about certain circles in which he worked or in which he lived, we get kind of new understandings of what exactly it was he was really doing or what he was engaging with. Yeah. I was an undergraduate at, at Georgetown, mm. and for one of our courses we had to – I mean, individually it wasn't a field trip, but we were all yeah. required to go to the museum. So, so I think I went my first time my freshman or sophomore year. And, it, and it, I mean, it's a very arresting experience – and I think everyone who goes there has some particular exhibit that is the yeah. the thing that gets them. For me, it was the shoes yeah. that I remember most. And I, so the I yeah I, I had I didn't know there was a fifth floor. <laughs> I guess they don't advertise it. Um, well, it, it's tucked away, and it's and we're open to the public. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's the thing is we have our libraries up on the fifth floor because we're a federal museum. We're we don't we're free people mm -hmm. and anyone can come up and use our libraries so you go into the library on any weekday and there are high school students writing papers sitting right next to the leading scholar in the world on some topic mm -hmm. uh, it's that kind of place wow yeah so something you mentioned i want to go back to because this is news also to me and maybe of interest also to our, our ccds director uh dr matt tapey you mentioned interfaith responses to yeah. the holocaust at the time around the world do you what, do you have a good example of, of what that was or what that looks like? Because this is not not a yeah. thing I ever would have thought about. Yep. You know, it's interesting. People don't realize the extent to which Jews and Christians were talking to each other and trying to work together mm -hmm. before the Holocaust. Um, and in this country, at least, that came, I mean, that actually began in the late 19th century. Um, but in the 1920s, in that interwar period where it was actually a period of a lot of social and economic turmoil in the United States, which led to the rise in some very ugly right-wing anti-Catholic activity, racist activity, anti-Semitic activity. 
And the Federal Council of Churches, which was the Protestant ecumenical organization, mm. decided to found an office called the, the Commission on Goodwill. Mm. This was in 1928. And the idea was <laughs> that they would reach out to Jews and Catholics and really try to get kind of a, a three-faith, these were the three leading faiths in the United States, try to get people to work together. And that led to the establishment of something called the National Conference of Christians and Jews, which became an independent body in 1932. And so, of course, they're coming into being just as things are happening in Nazi Germany. And, and you know, so they, they come at a very special moment, and they were directed by a man named Reverend Everett Clinchy, a Presbyterian who was a real entrepreneur. And he managed to push that organization to expand it throughout the 1930s until by the end of the Second World War, he started out part-time with a part-time secretary. Hmm. And by the end of the Second World War, they had an annual budget of over $2 million dollars and I think over 300 localized committees of goodwill around the country mm. of Catholics, Protestants, and Jews working together. And one of the first things they did was they tried to model what this looked like. Mm. And so this is going to sound like a joke, but what they did was they got a <laughs> rabbi, a priest, and a pastor to tour the country and, and kind of model what interfaith dialogue looked like. And one of the I've, I've done research on this organization, and looking through their archives, I came across actual transcripts mm -hmm. of these trialogues because they were trying to model this. So they actually had a script. And you read it today, and it was very hokey. I mean, it was sort of, you know, well, well, Father, we hear that the Pope tells all Catholics in the United States what to do. And then the priest says, well, but that's not true. We're all Americans. And so it was, you know, it was this kind of, of thing. But, but it was... I'm picturing the kind of, like, educational videos my parents would have watched in the, you know, the 50s in school. It was really along those lines. But this was something new. They traveled around the country to do it. They went to every single state, which is mm. how they founded all these local committees. And they really got something going. They, they were hosted by Roosevelt in the White House. They founded something called National Brotherhood Week. If you look at what is called Religious News Service today, it mm -hmm. was founded by them in the huh. 1930s. I didn't know that. They, they were very active. They wrote op-eds. And, of course, they came along at exactly the right time because when National Socialism came to power, then there was a... a group of people in this country who could try to address the rise of Nazism from that interfaith perspective. Hmm. Now, the, the, the history of that is much bigger than I can go into on your podcast, and it was kind of complicated. I mean, one of the things that we see in the 1930s is that the different issues that preoccupied each of the different faiths kind of drove them apart. Mm -hmm. I mean, the American Jewish community was enormously concerned about what was happening in Germany. Catholics were very worried about the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there there I were different, different agendas there sure. that kept competing with each other. But these were people who were really trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think understanding a history like that both gives us some insight into you know, how interfaith work can function and the fact that it has a much deeper history and also how difficult it really was for people in this country to respond effectively to what was happening in Nazi Germany. It also, I mean, it adds for me an interesting kind of historical plank to thinking about the ecumenical movement in the 1950s yeah. that I think maybe some people are more familiar with, right. yeah. which in a lot of respects is driven not, not so much by intentional ecumenical work, but by sort of uh, declining social barriers between especially Catholics and Protestants, yeah, yeah. but also, also with Jews. 
And so that, I, I, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. It's interesting to mention to it. So, yeah, I mean, an, yeah. an interesting thing with that, I think, is when you look at the generations or the different time periods in which a movement forms, of course, each movement has its own leaders that pass from the scene, and then you get the new generation. Um, and to some extent, that means you're constantly reinventing the wheel. But it, <laughs> it, but it also means that you have, you know, the new generations who come into any kind of activism, whether it's interfaith activism or social activism, you know, they're speaking to the issues of their time. And so the people who were speaking to the issues of the first part of the 20th century, uh, to the aftermath of the First World War, to the Great Depression, to the unrest in Europe, I mean, they were, they were looking at very specific issues. And so their agendas and their way of addressing them were really shaped by that era. Mm-hmm. Whereas after the Second World War, you have an entirely new set of issues on the table. Yeah. And understandably... <laughs> You know, the NCCJ turns into something very, very different after 1945 than it was during the 1930s. Mm. Yeah, one thing I often have trouble communicating to students when we talk about, because I I mean, I teach a lot of the sort of intro Christian theology classes as well. And one thing I sometimes have trouble getting them to grab onto is the way that, you know, when we read sort of mid 20th century Catholic theology, especially like Karl Rahner, but also, I mean, you know, people like Paul Tillich and things like that, they're, they're dealing with this changed, you know, religious context in the West where there's a growing and stronger sense of pluralism or recognition of pluralism. There's a real decline in uniformity in terms of the people that you would know and interact Mm -hmm. with and whatnot. And that this really changes the types of questions people are facing. And for my students now, we had this conversation one day, this is a couple of weeks ago now, I guess, where I was saying, you know, a hundred years ago, odds are, you know, everyone you knew believed roughly what you believed. Yeah. So if you were, you know, if you were Catholic, you probably lived in a Catholic area, right, a Catholic right. neighborhood. If you were a Methodist, you probably mostly knew other Methodists yeah. and you probably had never met an atheist and that would just blow your mind. Right, yeah. And and now, you know, just at the time of saying like in this classroom, like lots of people in this room don't believe what you do and don't have yeah. the experience you do. And yeah. One student was very surprised to discover that another student was an atheist mm. and whatnot. Like, this is just sort of the norm for me now. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things the NCZJ accomplished that we take for granted, but you can really see it when you look at the history, is after World War II, you had kind of a functioning pluralism in this country in terms of religious issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 1950s are when, you know, Will Herberg writes his, you know, his, like, blanking out on the name of the title of the book, but he, you know, he's looking at Jewish Catholic Protestant relations in the United States, um, looking at sort of this tri-faith America. Mm-hmm. And actually, my experience as a child in West Virginia, being in a Sunday school that goes to visit a synagogue mm-hmm. and a Catholic church, that came out of their work. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things I realized, and I realized this only when I was doing my research, I said to my mother, I said, so am I remembering this correctly? And in Charleston, was there a branch of the NCCJ? And Charleston turns out to have been one of the places they went to in the 1930s, got people in the different communities working together so that it was possible for somebody growing up in the 1950s to attend a Sunday school where you did that. (laughs) Um, You know, I took that for granted, but certainly not everybody had that experience. And 50 years previously, it's not something you ever would have done. Yeah. I had a question also, uh, Vicki, as I was thinking about what you were saying earlier regarding Bonhoeffer and this key question, and this also comes to mind in, in the context of this discussion about interreligious activity, and 
you mentioned that Bonhoeffer, you know, helps us with this question. If I'm a faithful Christian, what am I to do in this moment? I wonder if Bonhoeffer, is there a way that Bonhoeffer helps this question surface for a variety of religious traditions? And, I, and I, I'm thinking also of John Connolly's work with the pioneers yeah. who are using scripture really to fight Nazis at the end of the day, responding to anti-Catholic Nazis or, or responding to socialism. And, and like you said, even before uh, the Holocaust, I wonder, you know, with regard to interreligious activity today and relationships, is there a way the Holocaust can play, uh, the study of the Holocaust can help our interreligious relationships? Yeah. Well, do you have a couple more hours? <laughs> the, the big questions. Let me start first with the Bonhoeffer one, because I think it's, it's an interesting question that is now there are more people working on this issue of, you know, how does Bonhoeffer's theology inform, intersect with, help open the door to a kind of pluralism or interreligious conversation? And on the one hand, when you read Bonhoeffer, his theology is so Christian that it's hard to find those kinds of openings. I think, although this is something that I, you know, I, I, my mind could certainly be changed, I think part of the key in terms of Bonhoeffer's theology is understanding how he understood the place of Christianity within larger society. You know, he grew up in a family of, I would say, primarily secular humanists, his, one of his brothers was a world, a leading world physicist. He wasn't very religious. He was really the only theologically minded person in the family, although he was you know, raised to go to church on the high festivals. He was, of course, baptized and confirmed. But, but he grew up with an openness to uh, the idea that religion could also exist quite comfortably or the people of faith could exist quite comfo comfortably in a secular setting and indeed in the modern world that they had to. This is one of the things he explores in his theological writings in the early, you know, earliest period during the 1920s. You know, he talks about the fact that, you know, we live in a world, what he, what he calls a world come of age. It's a world in which we don't think the way medieval Christians do. We have too much science. Uh, we're post-enlightenment. We know that the, the sun does not rotate around the earth. We don't, we, you know, most of us don't think of God as sort of the grandfather sitting up on the clouds pulling the strings. <laughs> No, I mean, he, he really yeah. kind of goes into this, and he says that, that that means we think differently about our faith, and that's one of the things he tries to explore, but we also think differently about where we are in the world. And that's a thread that he kind of follows throughout the night. I mean, there's his writings throughout the 1930s, this is something he wrestles with. In his late prison letters, there's sort of this remarkable body of letters that we call the New Theology, which is what he called it, where he was really kind of wrestling with, well, what's the next step for Christianity? And at that point, he says, you know, we might need a religionless language, a religionless kind of Christianity. What would that look like? And unfortunately, that's kind of all we have from him. He didn't live long enough to complete that project. But I think it shows that he was wrestling with that question. What does it mean to be a person of faith, whatever your tradition, in a world that, you know, is, is not, you know, comprised of people who think the way you do? And indeed, a world in which God almost seems absent to many people, or many people have repudiated God. And that gets to the, Matt's second question about you know, the post-Holocaust setting. 
in which I think you really do have that sense of rupture in a number of traditions. People who, you know, people who study post-Holocaust theology or people of faith who study the Holocaust, you can't get around being challenged by what happens there. And it shapes how you think about other human beings. It shapes how you think about the role of God in history. You know, if something like this can happen, what does that mean? And I think that that actually opens the door to a more fruitful conversation, if we could have it, among all people who are shaken by some kind of trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, I find myself really thinking about this horrible tragedy in Texas last weekend where, you know, half of the congregation is murdered Mm -hmm. in cold blood. How are they going to practice their faith (laughs) coming out of that? You know, what's that going to do to them? I mean, it's a real serious question, and it's the, it's the same kind of question that confronted people after 1945, whether they were Jews who had survived the camp and now had to say, you know, what does my Jewish faith mean? Or whether they were Christians who came out of a setting in which Christians had become part of that evil, or if they were Christians who fought against it. I mean, you know, these are all big questions, and so I think... You know, if if you read Bonhoeffer not as a, a manual to tell you how to do it, but a manual to help you th- how how to think about these really tough questions, I think that's where he can be very fruitful. Yeah, and I, I think that that helps to illustrate, in a way, that that distinction between cheap and costly grace. Yeah. yeah. Right. For Bonhoeffer, on the on the the Texas shooting, <clears throat> one of one of the things that I didn't hadn't occurred to me, but I was reading about the other day in the news is that I guess one of the things that is common in these kinds of events is they then tear down the building where it occurs. Mm, yeah. And so this congregation that's already a fairly small congregation uh, is going to tear down and have to rebuild this church. And it, the the sense of place that goes with that is a really, is a, is a further, it's a further element of the tragedy, I think. Yeah, and I, I think, but I think it can also be part of the hard work of faith. I mean, this, this, you know, thinking of of the work we do as having to rebuild something after something terrible happens, mm-hmm. that that process of rebuilding mm-hmm. itself is one that gets you thinking about new ways to go forward. It's part of processing um, the it's trauma. Part, it's part of the process. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One last, maybe larger question <clears throat> for me, and then we'll move to the closing questionnaire. You'd mentioned, you know, research in terms of interfaith projects and uh, interfaith efforts you know, around the time of the Holocaust. And I'm wondering, just in terms of your own work at the museum and the the research that you do, this is maybe the sort of practical logistical question, but I'm wondering uh, how you balance or manage, you know, the different uh, responsibilities that you feel in terms of doing your own research, mm-hmm. working with the, the program on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust, traveling, doing, you know, lectures like you are today, I'm wondering if you have any, you know, good disciplines that you've learned or what. I don't, I don't feel I do this very well. But <laughs> I think this is the time management problem that we all confront. Most of my job at the museum actually doesn't consist of research. I'm working mm-hmm. with, you know, different faith groups that are visiting the museum or working with people who are trying to put together a course or speaking to groups when they come to the museum or traveling. Mm-hmm. The downside is that it doesn't really give me much time for my own research and writing. The upside is it really does generate a lot of 
mental energy and fruitful thoughts. So I'm constantly taking notes so that if I ever do find time to write, <laughs> um, there's a lot of food for thought. Yeah. But I, but I, I really do enjoy the work that I do. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I keep finding things I get asked in class, yeah. whether by undergraduates or grads, and just like, there's, <clears throat> there's a thing there I need to look into and right. yeah. try and answer. So, all right. So to close out, I, uh, we always have a few somewhat less serious questions to try to close out for. So my first one for you is, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee. <laughs> do you, do you like first thing in the morning yep. all day long? No, I just drink a couple of really strong cups of coffee in the morning, and that does me. Yeah. All right. Good. Number two, what is the best thing that you have read lately? Could be a book, article, I mean, anything. Oh, my goodness. I, you know, I read so much, and I'm trying to bring something to mind that I, I've read and enjoyed. You know, I'm, I'm reading the memoir of Dorothy Day that was written by her granddaughter, mm. and I'm enjoying that. Um, it, it's really interesting. You know, Dorothy Day is somebody I've always admired a great deal. And this gives a very different picture, a sort of a very human picture of her from you know somebody in her family who knew her from the grandchild's perspective. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm enjoying that. Yeah, I've been wanting to read that. Uh, I think my yeah. wife read that and enjoyed it a lot and talked about how it, it's interesting in that the way she talks both about her grandmother and her mother yeah. and the kind of different trajectories that they had uh, and how that shaped her. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good recommendation. Number three of whom or what would you be the patron saint? <laughs> oh, procrastination. But I have, the, I have a feeling that there are a lot, it's a large group of patron saints for procrastination. Well, they're getting to it anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm also really a cloud watcher, hmm. so I, I live. I have an apartment up on the 11th floor, and I have a fantastic view of the Virginia skyline. And one of my favorite things any time of day is to look out the window and look at the clouds. Nice. So I, I wouldn't mind being, you know, if procrastination is too full, <laughs> I wouldn't mind being the pa patron saint of clouds. All right. Number four, what word or phrase do you think you overuse? Complexity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm big on complexity. Yeah. That's good. And number five, last question. What would, as someone who worked on the complete works of mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer, what would the title of your autobiography be? Hmm. Well, there's an old blues song that um, I'm not sure this is the title. The title is Walk On. And the refrain is, I don't know where I'm going, but I do know where I've been. Okay. And so I think maybe something a phrase from that i do know where i've been or i don't know where I'm going. <laughs> great that's a great title i would definitely pick that one up well, dr burnett thank you thank so much you. for being with thank us you. i've enjoyed it thanks the daily theology podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 